Our message today comes from the Gospel of Micah, chapter 5. Hear these words. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you who are one of little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origins is from old, from ancient days. This is the word of God for the people of God. We are uh, in the second week of a series called um, Incarnation. We'll be walking through a book by Adam Hamilton. Uh, you can pick it up on uh, Kindle. It's real short, it's like 170-ish pages. And so uh, we're borrowing a little bit from Adam Hamilton on what he's talking about in this season. And it's a, it's a great read because it contrasts and compares a lot of things that we're going through um, in our uh, nation right now and in the world. Um, just a brief aside, thank you, Bells, for playing. It's such a beautiful uh, selection of music, and you guys did a great job. I know that I've missed uh, the arts and music during this time of uh, social distancing and quarantine. So it is truly good to gather uh, in the house of the Lord this morning. On Tuesday, November 3rd, it should be a uh, date that is either traumatic for some of us, tr- probably traumatic for all of us, was the uh, election of 2020, right? Just add it to the big pile of things that we've had to go through during 2020. It was a crazy uh, presidential campaign. There was 160 um, plus million voters who turned out, and there were uh, just truckloads, truckloads of uh, dollars raised by both parties. $3.65 billion were raised. Now, I don't know what that is, right? I have no idea what that looks like or what volume of money. I always think it's best to think about money in terms of food. I can, I can you know, me- measure that a lot more. So uh, that's if you, a Chick-fil-A sandwich is about $3.75. And so roughly 900 million Chick-fil-A sandwiches were raised for our presidential campaign. And that's how it, it'll work, right? Think about your mortgage in terms of uh, Chick-fil-A sandwiches. My cell phone bill is like 30 Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Uh, it, it helps, I promise. And during this time, we uh, take time to elect not only just the, our uh, president, but members of Congress and so on and so forth, local leaders, And then roughly three weeks later, ironically, we all gather to celebrate Advent, which marks the coming of our King. We gather to celebrate our leader here in this space. Where uh, politics uh, divides, Advent brings together. And it's a beautiful season in the church. This week we're going to be looking at some of the, the royal titles that are used in Scripture to define and talk about our Lord and Savior. And there's two today that we're going to drill down into. The first one is this title of King, also synonymous with Christ or Messiah. And the second title that we'll drill down into is this idea of uh, a Davidic hope, or what is this uh, person who's going to come and save us and deliver us all about. So we'll spend some time looking at that. So we all know what king means, right? Nod your head. You've seen those movies with the crown and like the cape and the the scepter. And a a king rules over an area. Um, England has a a queen and she rules over an area. We all know kind of what that royalty is. But uh, this was new to me. I didn't really realize the ties between Messiah, Christ, and king. They're actually all basically the same thing, which uh, I found fascinating. So the word uh, Messiah is an anglicized word from the Hebrew, meaning meshach. It's a guttural, it's a hak sound at the very end. Meshach, and it means anointed one. It means anointed 
one. We'll get into this anointing thing in a little bit, but that's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. We will remember that the Bible was originally, right, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in Greek. So if you are a a New Testament kind of Christian, and you're trying to read the Hebrew prophets, they had to translate it for you from Hebrew, right, nod your head, to Greek, right, all right. Now, the, that translation is called the Septuagint. I know, I'm getting sort of nerdy here, but I promise this will make sense. So it goes from Hebrew to Greek. And now, we, all, we live in 2020, and we read the Bible in English, so we, we had to translate it from the Greek into not English, right? It didn't exist yet. They had to translate it into Latin. And so when they translated it from the Greek to the Latin, they had to make these words sort of fit the time, culture, place, and space. So the word that they translate Messiah, which was in Hebrew, and they translate it into Greek, guess what word they use? Christ. And then when they translate Christ into king, these three words are, you're going to knock over the music, uh, the microphone, son. Watch your, watch your feet. Can you go sit in Mr. Anthony for me? You're making me nervous. Here comes mama. Thank you, mom. Okay. So <laughs> you have Messiah, right? Hebrew. Then you have Christ, which is Greek, and you have king. And it all means anointed one. I find that fascinating. So what do we anoint today, right? Because if I say anointing, you go, I don't think, maybe, right? Like the oil, y'all, like anointing. So things that we anoint today, we anoint an an altar when when a church is built. We anoint a, a baptismal font. We anoint the sick and the dying. We anoint our confirmands when they come and they, and they kneel before us at confirmation. We'll take water, we will anoint them. This is all things that we continue to anoint today. We, the, probably one of the most famous anointings of our, of our time, from some of our times, you can actually find this footage on YouTube, would be Queen Elizabeth's coronation. Let me get the date right, so you can look it up later. June 2nd, 1953. And the, the anointing of Queen Elizabeth was so sacred that when the, the archbishop would come in and anoint her, they actually brought in uh, like a canopy to kind of conceal that anointing from the cameras. And during that time, the archbishop would anoint her head, her heart, and her hands, setting it all apart for the work and glory of God. That's a very famous uh, example of anointing. The next, probably maybe uh, most famous anointing, other than maybe Jesus, um, if you're looking at scripture in terms of things that are really famous of an anointing in the Bible, you say the tabernacle was anointed, and probably the most famous person to be anointed in scripture would be King David. King David uh, ruled Israel between 1010 BC and 970 BC, the, that gets tricky, because remember, you've got you to count kind of backwards in your years. So it's not like, you know, in the future, it's, it's backwards. So he ruled from 1010 to 970. He's the eighth son of Jesse, so sort of the last draft pick in the NFL of Kings. He's uh, from Bethlehem, the tribe of Judah. Our passage today, which Cameron, you read for us, thank you so much, is from the prophet Micah. And it says, uh, there's a couple of words in there that sort of bear uh, studying First, there's that tricky word, Ephrathaph, or Ephrathim, or the thing that none of us can say because we're not, we're not from the ancient East. But it means fruitfulness. 
It's also sort of a, a place name. It's, it's a noun. It's a, it's a person. It's the idea that out of this fruitful area, a king will rise up. Out of Judah. Well, remember that, that there was a, a man, the king of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob wrestled God, and they changed his name to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes. And one of those tribes is Judah. And it's out of Judah that Jesse comes from, and Jesse's boy is David. He's the great-grandson of an immigrant named Ruth, which we did a study here in this community a while ago over those four chapters of Ruth. The great-grandson of Ruth. He's a shepherd boy, and his legacy is massive, just absolutely massive. He's named over a thousand times in Scripture, did you know that David is named more than Moses in our Bible? To me, that was mind-boggling. He's second only to Jesus. So in terms of the number of names in the Bible, it's Jesus. And I would say, oh, Moses, but I was wrong. No, it's Moses and then David. It's a massive, massive sort of personality in the Bible, which really establishes this idea of a Davidic hope. See, in the Old Testament time, right, there were kings that were raised up to sort of govern the people and rule them, and then they uh, either obeyed God or disobeyed God or some variation in between. And over time, the Israels were conquered, the Israelites were conquered, and they were sent off to exile. And then they'd come back, and they were exiled, and there's a sort of back and forth uh, of the history books over kind of where they are. And there's this, um, these people that rise up when they're in exile called the prophets, and they would say, certain things about their God and about their people. One of them is a guy named Ezekiel, and he writes this. See if we have that slide. I know that our our booth crashed earlier. We don't have it. I don't have it memorized. (laughs) So I'll say it real slow. You can write it down. You can read it later. There's two that we're going to reference. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24, and Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. The first one in Ezekiel really establishes a messianic hope. That this, he keeps naming this guy named David and David and David, but the thing about Ezekiel when he's writing is that David's long dead. So he's not talking about David, like David's going like, to come back from the dead and rule them. Ezekiel's saying it's someone like David, someone with those Davidic tendencies is going to come and deliver us. Someone like that. And then Isaiah says, that someone will come and be a wonderful counselor and bring everlasting peace. We know that's sort of familiar. We use that, that passage around Advent and Christmas time. Now, granted, this passage could be about um, a crown prince or King Hezekiah, and it probably is, but it's so much more than that because there's no earthly king who could satisfy all those things that Isaiah talks about. Again, those verses, if you want to look them up later, are Ezekiel 34 verses 23 and 24, and Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. So this king who would come who would free the people, and then we still don't have media, do we? Okay, I'm just double-checking because I was needed that slide. It's okay. And there's one more that we should look up, and that's Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It's how Matthew begins his gospel. He says this is the beginning of the gospel of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Matthew identifies up front who the anointed 
one is, who the king is who will come and deliver his people. These continue to be um, sort of contrasted back and forth, this um, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Matthew passage. So consider the kings of old, right? The Davids, the Solomons, the other kings, how they ruled, what vast lands they ruled under. I don't know about y'all, but um, I love watching timepieces. I'm just a sucker for a timepiece. And so we watched uh, Turn, which is on AMC, and you get to see like the king and the royal court and sort of the ornateness of it all. Uh, if you're watching like that with like royalty, you're like, man, that's opulent. Just the idea of like having all your meals prepared for you all the time, and you don't, you have to do anything. It was amazing. And we gotta make a lot of decisions, I suppose. But man, all your food prepared for you. And then all the sweet finery you get to wear, you know, the cape and all that, that must be interesting. Kind of cool to be decked out in like gold lace shoes or whatever. So you think about the kings of old and sort of the pure opulence that they had the land and the wealth and the power that they wielded. And then you think about our president and the, um, the upcoming inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. On Wednesday, January 20th, you think about how many Chick-fil-A sandwiches were spent on his <laughs> campaign. You think about how those people will gather on the western steps of the U.S. Capitol. There'll be news crews from around the world. There'll be thousands of people gathered to hear him talk. There'll be inaugural balls with food and wine and dancing. Then after that, the president will move into the White House with some really sweet security that none of us have. Uh, that person will yield and wield the most influential economic system in the world, and they will wield the most powerful military this world has ever seen. Contrast the kings of old and the president of the United States with the king that we gather to worship here today. A king who comes as a baby, born in a stable, with no newscast, with some poor shepherds to come and say that he's king, with no power over military, with no uh, authority over any sort of economic system. They try to make him king, and Jesus runs away. He just constantly sheds power and says, it is not what my kingdom is about. Think about the presidential campaign that Jesus Christ would have ran, right? He's running around town and he, he preaches about his kingdom all the time, about how it's about welcoming the stranger. It's about feeding the hungry. It's about clothing the naked. It's about caring for the sick. It's about denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following after God. It's a... Uh, he promises that the grieving will be comforted and those who hunger for righteousness will find it. The meek will inherit the earth. The citizens of the kingdom of God do the will of God. I'm struck by the contrast of the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world. And so as we celebrate Advent today, as we celebrate our king, may we be reminded of God's kingdom that is here and now in this place and in our hearts. May we work with fervor to continue the good work that God has begun in us and the world. And as the Lord prayer says, may God's kingdom come and may his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.